0: RT reports timeline for UN mission to Zaporozhia nuclear power plant is revealed. The UN's International Atomic Energy Agency, the IAEA, has formed a delegation that will visit Zaporozhia. Uh, in Ukraine, as early as this week, according to the watchdog's chief, Rafael Grossi, who announced this earlier today. The plant has been under Russian control since March and has been repeatedly shelled by Ukrainian forces. For insight into this, we turn to our first guest. He's a Moscow based analyst and international relations and security analyst, Mark Shloboda. As always, Mark, welcome back.
1: Dr. Leon Garland, thanks for having me. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be on the critical hour.
0: So according to IAEA support and assistance mission, the day has come. The IAEA is now on its way. We must protect the safety and security of Ukraine's and Europe's biggest nuclear facility. Grossi wrote on Twitter, adding, he's proud to lead this mission, which is set to arrive at the site later this week. Mark Sloboda.
1: Yeah. um, So I think it's an unqualified good thing that the IAEA, an agreement has been reached uh, supposedly to get them to the plant uh, so that they can verify the operational and material security of the plant. Um, And as well, hopefully they will uh, be able to make some type of judgment or statement about what they see about the damage done to the plant. Um, somehow I doubt that the regime is going to shell the facility once they arrive there. They left today. They are due to uh, leave on the September 3rd. Uh, so that gives them probably around three days at the plant. Um, supposedly, the majority of the team is made up, uh, by, uh, members from neutral states, states that are not, well, either Russia or NATO. <laughs> so, um, you know, they should not have a major conflict of interest, um, or at least that conflict of interest should be kept to a minimum, uh, that, that is also an, an encouraging note uh, from uh, Russian government reports about that, that this may be uh, nearly neutral and objective, which is pretty – actually pretty rare for a UN institution. Um, my concern is I have not yet heard uh, a lot about exactly how they are going to get there. Um I understand that there was some wrangling, uh, originally, um, and that Russia wanted the team to fly into area controlled by Russia, uh, and then go through that territory to the power plant, uh, which is in territory controlled by Russia. Whereas, uh, the Kiev regime, uh, insisted that, uh, they, uh, go by their territory. Now of course. Either side is responsible for the team's physical security while they are transiting through their territory, and if you think that someone might, might not take a pot shot at them and try to blame the other side, looking at you, Kiev, um, <laughs> you know that would that would. Um, you know, uh, fly in the face of so many of the dirty, nasty tactics that the Kiev regime has used thus far, like firing on their own nuclear power plant. Just today, um, they hit the roof of the building where uh, spent nuclear fuel is stored. Luckily, both the building and the containers within the building that the uh, spent nuclear fuel is stored is quite robust and designed to protect against some high energy impacts. Uh, But you know, things happen uh, and we certainly don't want to see some type of de facto dirty bomb effect there. The uh, other incident was this morning at the plant, a kamikaze suicide drone, um, which appears to be of the type provided by the United States, crashed into a building uh, in the plant, uh, uh, in in the perimeter uh, of the plant as well. This was a building um, next to the reactor, not the reactor itself. Uh, Supposedly, the drone uh, crashed. Uh, It was possibly brought down um or failed to operate and did not go off but we can see that the attacks continue and actually uh there is word that um the increase in attacks on the plant in the last week was significantly more than the week before that so at least up until the team's arrival we are seeing um an increase in attacks and then again how does this team get there uh, uh supposedly the Kiev regime military forces launched their much-ballyhooed southern offensive today and then retracted it <laughs> <laughs> um uh attract- The uh, Odessa um, regional official uh, announced it for the regime and then deleted his post. We do know that there was an increase in artillery uh, shelling um, of the Russian controlled areas uh, uh, there uh, in the region. Um, And supposedly um, we have it from the Russian Ministry of Defense that um, two infantry and one – Uh, tank battalion were engaged and uh, the Kiev regime side was repulsed with extremely heavy losses that may be in excess of 500 people and uh, well over two dozen uh, tanks and infantry fighting vehicles destroyed and two two, Sioux fighters as well. So it seems that charging across an open step into superior firepower is not actually such a good idea uh you know
2: the, i would say this the iaea inspectors i wouldn't be so worried about going there i'd be worried about their findings afterwards might end them up on the uh Merit vets uh ukrainian uh, you get rubbed out uh website you know if they say well apparently the russians aren't shelling themselves Boom, right on Merit Vets for you, pal. Austria blasts the EU energy strategy. Australian Chancellor Karl Niehammer called on Sunday for the EU to impose a cap on power prices. The Australian leader said, failure to do so would let Russian President Vladimir Putin determine the European electricity price. Well, we certainly can't have that, can we, Mark? Yeah, Putin determining the European electricity price. Your thoughts, Mark?
1: Well, I mean, Russia, I guess de facto does control the European energy price, considering that Russia has provided 40% of Europe's gas, right? It may be a little bit less this year, mostly due uh, to to them trying to cut down or sanctions preventing Russia from delivering the gas. But uh, because so many of the EU states use gas to produce electricity, they themselves have intrinsically linked those prices. So I don't know that Vladimir Putin has complete control <laughs> over that. Um, but he certainly has some degree of control uh, over the, uh, you know, the uh, supply of Russian gas. But um, uh, I would say that the European powers attempt to cut the gas out of the market, their sanctions um, uh, and uh, their inability to fulfill their own contracts for repair of turbine pumps have had an even greater effect on the price of gas than Vladimir Putin. Uh so uh, you know maybe they should actually be looking at themselves in the mirror when commenting on the high price of gas. But for Austria it makes sense because uh Austria does not get the majority of their gas of the electricity from gas and uh I, you know, that's something that they need to discuss with the rest of the EU, who uh, gets more of their electricity from gas. But um, you know, that's an internal matter.
0: Sputnik International and other sources are reporting Dugina's murder planned by one more member of Ukrainian sabotage group. The murder of journalist Daria Dugina was prepared together with Natalia Volva in. Moscow by another member of the Ukrainian sabotage group who left Russia the day before the bombing, the FSB has said. Uh, Your latest on this and what does this reporting tell us going forward?
1: Okay, so if you'll remember when we discussed this assassination multiple times, I said I suspected that she was not working alone and Mm -hmm. we didn't have any extra information yet. We don't know exactly what role she played. Did she uh, assemble the bomb? Did she plant it? Did she detonate it or was she simply doing surveillance? Those answers have not been definitively answered, but we do know one other – at least one other person of the team. There may still be more to be discovered. And uh, this is uh, a Ukrainian citizen uh, suspected of links to the SBU, Bogdan uh, Um And uh, what we have from him uh, is mostly uh, video surveillance footage of him with Volk, Um And um, it appears that he got her license plates and documents under the name of a real Kazakh citizen. Uh, which, um, you know, she used to then escape the country with a different ID and name than she entered with. Um, It also appears that he was with her and probably helped her assemble the explosive device. Uh, That is uh, what we have from the FSB so far. He left a day before. Uh, so it does not seem it is possible that he was involved in the planting and detonation of the vice, just the assembling. And uh, we're still waiting for more pieces of this puzzle. But it is yet more evidence that this was a Kiev regime um, uh, direct hit on Daria Dugina.
2: One more article, and this is um, the crazy neocons in over uh, at, at the hill. U.S. must arm Ukraine now before it's too late. Basically, what they say is that with the necessary weapons and economic aid, Ukraine can defeat Russia. Mark, your thoughts here.
1: Well, I mean, I'm, I'm a little confused by this article because I mean, has the somewhere between 10 and 40 billion dollars of aid that the U.S. has given the Kiev regime this year not been arming the country, Um, has the billions uh, in the last eight years up until this year not been the U.S. arming Ukraine? Um, I mean, what would it take? I mean, should the the U.S. government strip every weapon out of every U.S. soldier's hand, every vehicle that they're driving, and send it immediately to Ukraine, then – well, I mean, uh, theoretically, the the gear might be enough to beat Russia. Then, if you send every fighter jet and every aircraft carrier and everything else the U.S. has, of course the Kiev regime would then have no training and stay would still be a hodgepodge of weapons that they're unable to properly use provide logistics and maintenance chains so it's not clear that if they got the entire US military arsenal that they would actually still be able to to win this maybe if they got the nukes as well i guess but then you know we probably wouldn't be talking about it for very long afterwards either it's a silly letter by neocons <laughs>
0: Mark Lobota, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Thanks for having me. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Foreign Policy reports, you have no idea how bad Europe's energy crisis is. Natural gas prices are 10 times the usual, upending industries, angering consumers, and panicking politicians. For insight into this and how this portends for the future, we turn to our next guest. He's a peace activist, writer, and teacher and analyst, K.J. Noe. As always KJ, welcome back.
3: Thank you. Pleasure to be with you.
0: So foreign policy rights in most of the world, if most of the world is struggling with higher energy prices, Europe is being stretched on the rack forcing European leaders to improvise bailout plans and emergency measures to spare consumers from damaging economic pain come winter. The gas problem is largely due to Russia's war in Ukraine, which has disrupted exports of Russian gas to Europe and raised prices everywhere else. KJ, let's talk about this analysis, particularly in the context of the problem is largely due to Russia's war on in Ukraine. To me, this really flips the script, totally removing Europe and the United States from the analysis and just making this appear as though Vladimir Putin woke up one morning arbitrarily and decided, eh, you know what I'm going to do today since I have nothing else to do? I'm going to go into Ukraine. KJ, no. Yeah.
3: No, it's Absolutely. Upside down. You know, the gas problem is not due to Russia's war on Ukraine, but on Western sanctions on Russia, uh, which has disrupted the export of Russian gas. I mean, think of Nord Stream 2. I mean, how is that functioning? It's not. Uh, You know, it was uh, shut down completely. So this is the problem. And it speaks to the way in which you know, how deeply felt and how, you know, uh, how, how really, really bad it is in Europe. And so this uh, foreign policy, a ruling class journal, and it's telling you a half truth that mm-hmm. the situation in Europe is really, really dire, but it's misattributing blame.
0: And let me just quickly add, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned Nord Stream 2, because it's very important for people to understand the timeline. The United States has been talking about Nord Stream 2 even towards the end of the Trump administration. And it was during the election that Nord Stream 2 was one of the talking points And Joe Biden was talking about this very problem while he was a presidential candidate. So most a lot of people who heard you mention Nord Stream 2 would think, oh, they they decided not to turn up Nord Stream 2 in response to Russian intervention in Ukraine. No, folks, this decision was made long before President Putin recognized the need to intervene. Absolutely.
3: And, you know, if Europe is struggling and trying to improvise plans and emergency measures, there is a very, very simple uh, solution. Nord Stream
0: 2. Turn it on. Yeah, well, and, here,
2: and here's the other thing. What One of the things this shows is the dual crisis, the crisis of the elites, and that is you have a crisis, but you have an elite ruling class that is wholly unprepared to deal with that crisis. They have an ideological crusade going on against Russia and China, and the ideology is simple. The U.S. empire must be the world's hegemon at all costs. And they, in the same way that they are willing to sacrifice the life of every last Ukrainian and every last Taiwanese. In the same way, they're willing to sacrifice the lives and livelihood and standard of living for every last European. And that's all that it comes down to. They know what's going on. They can see what's going on. But they have decided we'd rather have these Europeans freeze, die, toes fall off from uh, uh, frostbite, starve to death. We don't care as long as we can make an attempt, albeit a futile one, to arrest the development of Russia and China. K.J.,
3: This is absolutely correct. I mean, the U.S. has designated China and Russia as, quote, unquote, revisionist powers, which means that they are enemies. They're enemy states. And the U.S. is doing everything it can to prevent and to contain and to undermine uh, both of these countries. Now, specifically relating to the effects or the impacts on the people, the thing is that when you go to war, People are conscripted, and this is what has happened to the Ukrainians who are dying uh, in mass uh, as cannon fodder for uh, a proxy u s war against Russia. On the other hand, uh, the majority of people outside of Ukraine are not directly conscripted, but they have been financially conscripted, that is to say, their wallets have been conscripted, and this is what we 're seeing with the Uh, tremendous inflation and uh, tremendous supply chain issues and the lack of energy. And that pain bears down on everybody who is, you know, conscripted against their will into this war. There was no agreement on the peoples of Europe that this would be the case. This was the ruling imperial elite deciding that they were going to conscript both the bodies of Ukrainians and the wallets of Europeans into fighting a war for their interests, which does not serve the interests of the Europeans or anybody else in the world.
0: And sticking with this foreign policy piece, they write, Normally, Europe can refill its gas storage during the summer and coast in the winter when usage is higher. Now, with colder months looming and Russia's tightening chokehold on natural gas flows, Europe has been locked in a race against time to fill its tanks, which leaders have stocked by paying eye-watering prices but what's left out of this analysis as my memory re- recalls is russia has said we have contracts we will fill these contracts provided you pay us in rubles why because the united states has imposed sanctions on russia and will not allow these countries who in colder months would be uh, be able to draw upon their storage They can't store it. They can't get it. It's not because of Russia. It's because of the United States sanctions and these European countries, to Garland's point, would rather freeze than violate or go up against the United States and operate in their own best interest.
3: Yes, I think you're absolutely correct. But I would uh, add a little precision to that. It's not that they would freeze, but they would rather freeze their people who have had no say in their imperial uh, plans of war against Russia.
2: Another uh, interesting article, it's in Asia Times, U.S. Feds wrecking ball slams Asian markets. Chairman Fowles comments hinting at more rake heights unleashed new carnage today's on J- today on Japanese, Korean, and other Asian markets. Your thoughts on all of this, KJ?
3: Well, I mean, this is, again, once again, a blowback and, uh, you know, the, the result of, of the war. Uh, as i said you know finances and economies have been conscripted whether they want to or not into this us proxy war against russia and when uh, the united states or europe uh, catches a, a, a sneezes uh, asia catches a cold this is exactly what's happening we're seeing supply chain disruptions we're seeing massive inflation we're seeing disruptions in employment and all of this we can lay On the fact that uh, this very, very poorly designed hybrid war, this economic war against Russia, most of that blowback is blowing back against the countries that the U.S. has directly or indirectly conscripted into its contestation.
0: There's an interesting piece in The Guardian. Three Dutch commandos wounded in shooting outside U.S. Hotel. Three Dutch commandos in the United States for training exercises have been wounded in a shooting in downtown Indianapolis after what local police believe was a disturbance outside the hotel they were staying. The Dutch defense ministry said one of the men was in critical condition and the other two were conscious, while Indianapolis police said two of the soldiers were in critical and the third was staying. Why is this relevant to you, K.J. Now? What does this signal to you, K.J. Now?
3: Well, there are a couple of things that are pretty curious. At first, I didn't really understand or know that the Dutch have special forces, but clearly they do, since they're sending them for advanced urban training in the United States. So they're receiving training in the United States. Uh, they seem to be staying in three-star hotels rather than in the safety of their barracks, which is why they have this altercation and they do not seem to have received any training in urban safety even though they're uh, undergoing urban warfare training and you know the part of the mythology of, is the kind of invincibility of uh you know special forces but you know this shows that you know it's hard to call in air support when there's a street altercation it's it's tragic they've been injured but clearly uh, they were in a situation that they did not have control over, and there have been uh, some, at least two of them have been critically injured. Why are they in the United States receiving urban warfare training? I think that is the $64,000 question, and I would surmise, I would venture guess that this has to do with uh, U.S. expansion of NATO's uh, ambit all around the world.
2: And, and, and I'll add this, and maybe I'm, you know, there are people that may question this. I think the Dutch, along with the rest of the people in Europe, Uh, understand that this winter could be trying, shall we say, and that it's quite possible that in their cities, the urban warfare training is not for some enemy. It ain't for the Russians, and it isn't for the Chinese. It's for Dutch farmers. It's for German farmers. It's for French and all of these people who are going to be coming to the city saying, we're hungry, and we're cold, and we're sick and tired of it, and it's possible that the U.S. is possibly training people. I mean, I know this is a stretch, but But if you look at the future, I don't think it's that much of a stretch, KJ.
3: I don't think it's a stretch for any European capital. And we've seen the kind of intense, you know, literally urban warfare uh, all over Europe, uh, in particular in France, but all over. And so I think the Dutch, being the good administrators they are, may be thinking ahead and, uh, you know, getting a preparation from the, you know, the United States, which you know, sees itself as capable of exerting full spectrum dominance uh, uh, across all uh, uh, all battle theaters, including civil disturbance.
0: I find it interesting, it says in this article, the shooting occurred about 3.30 a.m. in Indianapolis's Entertainment District. Police officers said they found three men with gunshot wounds and they were taken to hospitals. K.J., I will use, I'll just give my opinion here, and I will surmise that these Dutch commandos ran up against some American, we'll call them urban commandos, and found out they were outmanned, outgunned, and basically they rolled up on some brothers and some brothers handled some business. (laughs) That's just my opinion, KJ No.
3: I think that's probably exactly what happened. And uh, I think that once again, you know, you uh, run into some brothers and you get uh, hostile with them and you don't have air support, then perhaps (coughs) you're not as, you know, powerful as you would think you are.
0: This is from The Economist. Are sanctions on Russia really working? Russia invaded Ukraine. We know that isn't true. On the battlefield, a war of attrition is taking place along a thousand kilometer front line of death and destruction. Beyond it, another struggle is waging, an economic conflict of a ferocity and scope not seen since the 40s as Western countries try to cripple Russia's $1.8 trillion economy with a novel arsenal of sanctions. Your thoughts, KJ No.
3: Well, this is a very, very interesting um, article from The Economist. And, you know, remember, The Economist is the journal. It's one of the key journals. It's the kind of smarty-pants, self-confident, snarky uh, journal of the imperial ruling class. It's how it uh, speaks to itself. And uh, they have very, very belatedly acknowledged that sanctions – uh, and uh, the unipolar moment has transitioned, uh, and so I think uh, it's it's a very very interesting article. It acknowledges the end of the unipolar moment of U.S. hegemony, and it points out the weakness of U.S. sanctions, and it says that the West can no longer assume it has preeminence. That said, then this article pivots back to saying that uh, because of this weakness because we are no longer able to impose cheap sanction now we have to make sure that we have our hybrid warfare better coordinated in other words hard power military force and soft power have to be better coordinated and then it argues for you know uh, more of that uh, in ukraine and in preparation for war with china
0: i find this sentence or sentences to be very interesting Behind such ambitious goals lies a new doctrine of Western power. The unipolar moment of the 90s when America's supremacy was uncontested is long gone. And the West's appetite to use military force has since waned since the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Sanctions seem to be seem to offer an answer by allowing the West to exert its power through control. But of course, we know that that isn't working. As always, K.J. no. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis. Uh, We really look forward to having you back. Have a wonderful evening. KJ No, Thank you. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Common Cause has a piece entitled, AOC Says Congress Could Reverse Trump Tax Cuts to Cancel All Student Debt. Quote, you could undo the 2017 tax cuts for the 1% and forgive all student loans, plus have money left over, according to Ocasio-Cortez. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He's a diverse communication. Professional. He has a background in leading communications departments, being a communications professor and a TV news correspondent on numerous networks domestically and internationally. Dr. Colin Campbell, as always, sir, welcome back. Thanks for having me. So AOC said this Saturday that Congress could reverse the 2017 Republican tax cuts with overwhelmingly beneficial, which benefited the rich and large corporations to finance the cancellation of all remaining student loan debt after Biden announced his more limited plan to wipe out $10,000 for most borrowers. Speak to this, particularly this coming from her, and I think, I i didn't go back and check the numbers, but I think a lot of Democrats voted for these tax cuts when they were proposed in 2017, Dr. Colin Campbell.
4: Yeah, there's a lot of money that could have been made and that has been made and that could possibly be augmented through the, that tax cut. And it's not just Republicans who benefited from it, right? We do have a lot of affluent Democrats who are in Congress as well. So when these tax cuts were passed, there were a lot of lawmakers that stood to benefit from it. So there's going to be some reluctance in dialing this back, unless it's uh, what AOC was really alluding to was the push from people to dial this back or, or to rescind it. I, I think that in all reality, that's unlikely, uh, unless there was some groundswell of attention that the average citizen was willing to give this tax cut and showing some outrage and people in the streets, and obviously we don't really see that momentum happening now. There's a lot more outrage over other things, inflation, uh, the abortion issue, to some point, to some parts uh, the gun uh, gun access and gun safety. We, we hear that uh, the average person being more vociferous about those issues than we hear about Trump's tax cuts. So what she's saying is if people really showed enough outrage, they could influence lawmakers to rescind this tax cut. Uh, And I just don't really see that happening. But I guess logically that could be a possibility.
0: And let me just quickly correct myself. The Democrats did not support the 2017 cut. I I was wrong there.
2: Let me read one um, paragraph and I I think it's important. We need to discuss. Despite the unpopularity of the TCGA, that's the Trump Trump tax cuts, which permanently slashed the corporate tax rate from 35 to 21 percent, congressional Democrats have yet to fulfill their promise to undo the law, blah, blah, blah. Okay, two things. Number one, deep unpopularity. It's what you said. The Democratic Party constituents are like, get rid of it. We Support you, right? And the Democrats have yet to fulfill their promise. They said they were going to get rid of it. Here we are, a couple of months from the midterms, and the Democrats are like, whatever could we possibly do? We're going to get slaughtered. We have no chance. How can we possibly? Maybe January 6th will work. Maybe this or that. And they could just keep their promises and do things that they promised that they would do that are extremely popular with their base. But for some reason, that seems to be the one thing that, that, that they can't come up with. Your thoughts, Dr. Uh, D- Campbell?
0: Well, especially since those were the promises that got them elected. What? <laughs> How think? about this? It got him elected, and now
2: the same people who voted for him because they promised they would do it are saying, are you going to do it? Maybe we'll vote for you again. Nah, that's a whole lot. That's a tall order. Anyway, uh, uh, Dr. Campbell.
4: Yeah, President Biden himself on the campaign trail said, on day one, I will move to eliminate Trump's tax cuts. Okay, what happened to that from day one? <laughs> they were pretty far from that day one, aren't we? But like I said before, even if Democrats didn't vote on it, they still there are Democrats that still stand to make money from these tax cuts. So that that overwhelming urge to speak out against that and be you know, adamantine in their ideology of not providing more corporate welfare has been diminished. And I think that's what we are experiencing right now. There has been a tent. Our attention has been turned to other issues to get us to the polls to vote out Republicans or keep Democrats in power while the Democrats who are in power will continue to make money because of the tax cuts. Because remember, it's not just uh, helping and assisting the richest of Republicans. It's also helping to assist the richest of Democrats as well. And of course, this ties into the neoliberalism that, uh, you know, we're becoming a bigger part of as a society in America, what, what some call a plutocracy, right? And so you have more businesses standing to make money, uh, having more influences over laws and policy, And this is the result of that, where you have the the leading politician, the head of the executive branch who made these promises that sounded very populist and everyone thought was a great idea and said, yes, we're for that. We're going to vote for you despite a a very sagging campaign so far where it's almost all but dead. We're going to revive you. We're going to put you in office. We're going to hope that you stand by that promise. And when he gets to the White House, it's like, oh, well, let's turn our attention to something different, right? There's something else that you guys can be outraged about and motivate your vote about. And that's kind of this, the artifice that we're experiencing right now.
0: Sanders derides Republicans for squawking about debt relief, but not handouts to billionaires. I know it's shocking to some Republicans that the government actually on occasion does something to benefit working families and low-income people, said... Bernie Sanders. Uh, he mocked on Sunday the Republicans over its sustained meltdown in the wake of Biden's plan for student debt cancellation, noting he never hears any other Republican squawking when we give massive tax breaks to millionaires. And I think Bernie Sanders is making a phenomenal point here because when the Fed was ha- was giving zero interest loans To American corporations, what is that other than a bailout? When during the Obama administration, we bailed out the banks because they were too big to fail. Republicans didn't complain about that. Add this. They just forgave. They're in the process
2: of forgiving $953 million worth of PPP loans. Like people like worth $400 million got loans. No means testing for that. Jared Kushner. Jerry Kushner got low. Yeah, exactly. Your thought. No means testing for those.
5: Dr. Campbell.
4: Yeah. Uh, here we go again. This is uh, Sanders really bucking back from that anger that he felt when this tax cut was passed during the Trump administration. Just to put it in perspective for the listeners out there, we're talking about $2 trillion, nearly $2 trillion, right? Just short of $2 trillion when you look at it in a relative way of tax cuts that were provided to businesses. Now, at that time, the former president said that corporations would go wild over it and that he predicted that it would create a boom in business and that, factories would be revitalized and it would get back to work. Well, how's that really working? Right. Do we see, you know, there are low unemployment numbers, but I don't hear this overwhelming uh, chorus that, you know, that the landscape for businesses is so much better, um, even though there are people that have returned to work amid the COVID uh, dilemma. And so, When we're talking about corporate welfare, this is one of the issues that has really divided many people uh, in government and has created a distaste in voters' mouths when it comes to government because of the fact you have so many people that continue to suffer, but yet we have trillions, literally trillions of dollars that we can give to corporations in order for the corporations to hire more people possibly or to expand their, their bottom line or their revenue base. When people look at that, they just say, you know, what, what's the point of the people we're electing into office, the people that we do elect? Are not looking out for our best interests. Government in general is not looking out for our best interests. And when you look at the approval ratings, when you look at the feeling that people have about Congress, the way they feel about the executive branch, they have had low approval ratings because the public, they're not dumb. They see this. They're saying, how come these businesses are making, are getting so much, so much in tax breaks where to the point where some of them pay a lower tax break, executives are paying lower taxes and are in a lower tax bracket, than secretaries and executive assistants, those in the lowest uh, pay scale of an organization or a corporation? Why is it that there's such a disparity in the way that we are paying taxes? This is not in our best interest, and this is why I'm not going to give Congress or our lawmakers a high approval
0: rating. We have about two minutes left. Uh, buyer's remorse could be creeping in for Republicans on abortion. The signs are disparate inconclusive and perhaps not fully applicable to the 2022 midterms, but virtually everything since the Supreme Court overturned Roe in June Repub- suggests Republicans have a political problem on their hands. Now they've obtained their long-term or long-sought goal of being able to severely restrict and even ban a woman's right to choose. Uh, we got about two minutes. Colin Campbell.
6: The laws,
4: especially when it came to trigger laws, those laws that went into place um, pending the Supreme Court decision, they were very extreme. Uh, When you look at cases of women who may uh, have stillbirths or or give birth in a way to fetuses that aren't fully developed, when you talk about cases where uh, young women or girls have been uh, sexually assaulted, by someone and are forced to carry the, the baby as a result to term. When you have these extreme cases uh, being exposed in, in our media, you get even more outrage. Women particularly were already upset with the overturn of Roe versus Wade. But then when you hear of these extreme cases, there's even an augmented outrage from that. And I think this is part of the uh, the, the, the ethos that Democrats hope to capitalize on in November. Uh, we already see it online and social media, women's groups coming out and calling it, calling it uh Womember or c- c- Rovember c- recreating the name uh, to remind voters that this is a big issue that they should be voting on come November. Uh, again, This is going to be uh, the the issue that Democrats are hoping to galvanize voters over, even more than the economic woes that many Americans are facing on both sides of the aisle.
0: Colin Campbell, as always, thank you so much for your time. We greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back.
4: I look forward to returning. Take care.
0: Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, in you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Popular Resistance has a piece entitled, West's neoliberal age of abundance is over as war and sanctions boomerang home. France's president, Emmanuel Macron, a former banker, warned that, quote, we are living the end of what could have seemed an era of abundance, calling it a kind of major tipping point or a great upheaval. Western wars and sanctions are boomeranging boomeranging back at home. The neoliberal phase of capitalism is collapsing. For insight into this, we turn to our next guest. He's a writer at thepolemicist.net and Counterpunch. He's the author of The Wrinkle, Abortion Rights, Vaccine Passports, and Bodily Autonomy. Dr. Jim Cavanaugh, as always, welcome back. And it's
7: always a pleasure to be here.
0: So the piece continues. Neoliberalism has lost the key pillars it was built on. Cheap energy and raw materials from Russia, cheap labor and consumer goods from China, an unstable bubble of household debt, low to zero interest rates, and Washington's ability to organize regime change operations in any country where a government tried— a socialistic or state-led economic model. Your thoughts on this analysis, Jim Kavanaugh? When I would take issue with their discussing the key pillars, because as I recall, neoliberalism was first implemented in Chile. The Chicago Boys implemented neoliberalism in in Chile, and so help me with this. Well, yeah, but you know, this was a this is.
7: This article is, you know, uh, what you're quoting here is a summary of a little video that Ben Norton has, which is a very good analysis. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, neuralism was put into place in Chile, the Chicago boys, et cetera, in the 70s. Uh, but it didn't come into full force in the European social democracy Correct. until the 80s. And what, what Norton's put to point here, and it's a very good one, and it's absolutely right, it's a, cl- it's a classical Correct Marxist analysis of what happened in the world after World War II is that after World War II, you know, the communist parties and the socialist parties at the end of World War II in Western Europe were armed, powerful, popular. They were the dominant political factions in those countries. But people don't realize that the Yalta Agreement, which the right wing keeps, you know, points to, because the West ceded to Soviet Union and Stalin's hegemony over Eastern Europe, but in return, Stalin, ceded hegemony over Western Europe <laughs> to the American-led capitalist uh, regime. And as a result of that, those parties, those political parties in France and Italy, which could have forced their will on post-war governments, stood down <laughs> and let the American-led capitalist regimes reformulate. And only the countries that resisted that were in Yugoslavia and Greece, where there was fighting. But that was a deal between Stalin and the West, <laughs> okay? So in return for, American hegem- for uh, Soviet hegemony in Eastern Europe, the Americans got hegemony over Western Europe and reformulated capitalism without the, the, the resistance that they could have had from the popular uh, socialist and communist forces. But they had to, in those countries in Western Europe, institute a social democratic regime. In the face of...
3: Uh, oh, oh,
7: post-capitalist regime that guaranteed jobs, that guaranteed healthcare, that guaranteed education, they had to do some of that. And also because they had to do it for their own uh, you know, populations that had suffered through the war. So social democracy was instituted in Western Europe, not so much in the United States, but as a result of this, the presence of the post-capitalist socialist world on their borders. And when the demise of the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe came and the demise of those socialist, what uh, Norton calls at least state-led economies, then neoliberalism could come in and could come in really, and it's been a war against social democracy in Europe to undermine the social democratic regime, what he calls Jinjinism. And they replaced that with a, with a privatization, with every you know incipient shark uh, entrepreneur for him or herself, and that's what's been happening in the past thirty years in, in Western Europe, with the uh, complicity and actually led by the so-called social democratic parties. So that's what's happened, and it's destroyed the basis of what was the attractive possibilities of social democratic Europe. is really what these are. This is the good capitalism that people have in their minds, that people in other parts of the world have in their minds. So this has been for for the past forty years. Uh, uh, Persistence onslaught against what was the social democratic situation in Europe, and of course the United States never had a really strong social democracy. And since 1980, they've been destroying. You know, the great he has a great uh, uh, chart there. Where he shows the percentage of income gains that have gone to the top 1% versus the bottom 50% and it's absolutely reversed you know it used to be that 50% of the income gains went to the top the bottom 50% and only 5% went to the top 1% now it's exactly the opposite so you have a, an onslaught a social onslaught that's taking place and it has depended to a large extent on the ability of the population especially in the past 20 years and you know to uh, uh, to take on debt at low interest rates, but that's over. It's, it's dependent upon the ability of American capitalists through outsourcing, et cetera, to provide a stream of cheap consumer goods. That's now over. And his point is very good. You know, this really is over in the sense that what's happening with Russia and China and these countries, they're restructuring the world. It's not coming back to what it was. You know, the, the, they're not going to have the sweetheart deals about energy that Russia is, is going to work with. Saudi Arabia and Qatar. And uh, they're going to work with the providers of energy and raw materials and essential commodities. And the West and the Western capitalist regimes are going to have to pay a higher price for all of that. So we're living through a transitional period where neoliberalism, its ability, you know, this idea that, that came about after the demise of the Soviet Union that history is over and the only thing that's left is what's called market democracy, which meant The Western world—that's over. You know, history is not over; it's changing again, and we're not quite sure where it's going. But it's—it's—it's—it's going. You know, as Ben Norton points out, the Western leaders themselves, Macron, has to get up and say the era of abundance is over, and we have to start dealing with that. Of course, they want—he's saying that ridiculously to the working classes who've never had. The abundance, but you know they are going to try to maintain a situation in which wealth inequality continues to increase and try and demand that the working populations of, of the West and of Western Europe and the United States pay the price and suffer more while their ability to uh, increase their billions it, it just continues. And that's going to be a, a an impossible situation politically.
2: Let me tweak this a little bit. After World War II. Um, The Soviet Union had an open hegemony, had an open, frank, honest hegemony over Eastern Europe. These are our countries. We're in charge of them and we tell them what to do. Right. The U.S. empire had a clandestine hegemony over Western Europe where they created. Now, you call it a a social democracy. I'll go in a completely different direction. It was still a hegemonic imperial dynamic, but they had to create the illusion of a democracy so that the people of Europe would go along believing they had independence and sovereignty. Now, this particular dynamic created by the Ukrainian uh, crisis has has pulled the mask off. And so now the people of Europe can look up and see. We never had democracy. This is not a democracy. You're freezing the Right. We democracy. And we're saying to our leaders, don't do it. And our leaders are saying, we can't hear you. The only thing we can hear is coming out of Foggy Bottom in the in the uh, in, in D.C. Your thoughts, Jim.
7: Well, by social democracy, I mean the socioeconomic regime. I mean,
2: Europeans do have free health care. They do have free public education. <laughs> you know, That's not the uh, part I was talking about. Not, not the social part, the democracy part. They Sure, they, got, they don't have a social democracy because they'd have to have democracy, and in fact, it's a colony to the U.S. empire.
7: Yeah, no, I agree, and what I'm saying is that I was talking about that part of it, but you're right in the sense that there were, the political choices were always limited. The limitations were just not as obvious, and they were, they were limited – uh, and, and it was always the case, and the intelligence operations and the uh, you know the, the, the national security operations in every country were always subject to the United States, and they were always subject to preventing any kind of rise of the uh, political and uh, socialist or, or communist parties that was subst- that, that, were, that were substantively socialist or communist and entrance into the government. That was, a, that was, and that was, you know, you could, as it's the old Chomsky thing, you could have a very lively discussion, but it was only within certain limits, very lively political battles, but only within certain limits. And you're right. Soviets were more up, up, uh, overt about that in, in Eastern Europe, but it was no less strict and no less real in Western Europe. And that, uh, so that was, you know, the situation. And, uh, but you know now the, the, the social dynamic has changed and the socioeconomic situation has changed. That's why people can see we have to have other possibilities that we've never been allowed to – we really haven't engaged with, you know, and we need to do that. So that's going to be uh, – uh, that's the dynamic we're in now, that, that you can't keep the, the lid on the political or socioeconomic the, – the need for political and social socioeconomic alternatives – and somehow or another, they're going to try and do that. They're going to try and keep a live on that. They're going to do it with repression and they're going to do it with demand for sacrifice in order to support the empire, which is the American empire. And Europe, the European populations are likely, or, you know, I hope, and one would think that they would not, you know, put up with that any longer and be, be sitting there and say, okay, we're willing to sacrifice ourselves really for the continuation of the American empire, not even for our. What used to be, uh, you know, a socioeconomic regime of uh, relatively relative prosperity for us, that's not even there anymore. So you'd hope they would rebel against that just as you'd hope the American working class would. But uh, we got to see what happens.
0: Well, in fact, thank you, because that's my next question. we got to see what happens. My question to you, how does this work itself out? Because as we have said on this show a number of times, struggling imperial global hegemons don't go quietly into that long dark night so how does the because we know that that president putin isn't going to roll over xi jinping isn't going to roll over erdoğan lukashenko they're not going to roll over on this they they're moving forward a full speed ahead damn the torpedoes and so how does this how does this resolve itself with the formal global hegemon, now still trying to punch over its weight, what does it do?
7: Well, you know, I I wish I had the answer, but you're right. This, this...
0: And we have one minute for you to give that answer. <laughs> <laughs> I should better wrap it all up.
7: Uh, yeah, I mean, this is the world we live in now that the Americans did not expect. And for 30 years after the demise of the Soviet Union, they presumed, with some rightfulness that they could just roll over anything. Now they can't. And now they're in a position where they're going to have to – they know they're going to lose unipolar control – and the soviet the russians and the chinese are not going to stop on this they know now also that, um, that there's no reason for them to stop unless they stop they're going to be sanctioned to hell forever so they're creating a new economic and economic and political world the contours of which we don't know uh, yet but the best chance we have to avoid direct military conflict which is very likely much more likely in this circumstance is for the, popu- the working class populations of Europe and the United States to rise up and change their political regimes so that they're no longer seeking this kind of imperial hegemony.
0: Dr. Jim Kavanaugh, as always, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Thank you. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co host, Garland Nixon. There's another hour on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. The Times of Israel reports U.S. hints to Gantz it's preparing military option against Iran. Defense Minister Benny Gantz told U.S. President Biden's National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan on Friday that Israel needs the U.S. to have a credible military option against Iran. A senior Israeli official said to reporters, reports of an emerging renewed nuclear deal between the Islamic Republic and world powers. What are we to make of this and what are the intricacies involved or the nuances of such a statement? For insight, let's turn to our next guest. He's an analyst, broadcaster and journalist based in Beirut, Lebanon, Laith Marouf. As always, Laith, welcome back. Thank you for having me. So according to the defense official, Israel received good hints with regard to the U.S. having a working offensive plan against Iran. He did not elaborate, but said it would be potentially to ensure Tehran is more flexible during negotiations for the renewed accord. Leith, your thoughts on this, how much of this is just political posturing, particularly as... Reports are Iran is considering the U.S. response to the Iranian counter offer. Your thoughts, Laith Marouf?
5: Well, it's clearly this is uh, made for Israeli uh, audience consumption. There is no military option that uh, the United States can deliver in Iran. Uh, Uh, Any military strategist uh, would tell you that if uh, Iran is attacked by the United States, uh, that all its bases in the Gulf region, as well as all the uh, oil and gas resources uh, that the United States have controlled for the last 60 years in those Gulf countries will be decimated uh, to the ground. So clearly this is uh, just uh, Zionists talking to themselves, making themselves feel better. Uh, Ultimately, right now, uh, the Zionist colony is uh, in decline. It is uh, on a high alert because of the possibility of war with Lebanon over the gas fields in the Mediterranean. Uh, We're already coming to the deadline uh, for that possibility. And the West Bank and Gaza are, are, you know, specifically the West Bank of Palestine is still in, on fire. So the Israelis and the Americans have no military option with Iran. And Iran is continuing to actually sell its uh, gas and oil at maximum output. It can't uh, keep up with the customers that are asking for its products and is uh, chugging ahead uh, in a for to the century without American uh, hegemony on uh, this planet.
0: I find it interesting that it said, according to the defense official, Israel received good hints with regard to U.S. having a working offensive plan against Iran. I found the word offensive to be very interesting because up to this point, the narrative has always been that, Israel needed to defend itself against an offensive Iran. Here now we have Israel pleading with the United States to go into attack mode.
5: But that's also uh, denying that the United States actually has been attacking uh, Iran in any means possible other than direct war. Um, And that includes, of course, the uh, sanctions over the last uh, three or four decades uh, you know, the looting of uh, the resources of uh, Iran in in external banks, the constant harassment of its shipments and so forth, as well as, of course, the uh, covert operations assassinating um, Iranian officials and, and scientists. Uh, so there is already mm-hmm. and that's the maximum the United States can do is this is not a small country. We're not in the 1960s anymore. Iran has become an international exporter of technology and weapons, and it will defend itself uh, against aggression. And I believe all its allies in the region are ready right now for the final war that will bring an end to the, the Zionist colony. So here's the Zionist colony just barking in the wind where the United States itself kind of offer it, but words of uh, nothingness. Um,
2: another thing that we see now, and I wanted to ask you about this. There's an uh, there's another article. Israeli strike targeted mis- uh, targeted missile depot in Syria. Well, we know they're always telling us there's something in Syria that they've got a bomb. But we've also, and I don't know if you've been following this, the U.S. Um, uh, uh, bases in Syria have been involved in more and more activity. It seems like they're they're getting struck by drones, and there's there's more attacks coming against the, the U.S. bases in Syria. What do you know about? that whole Syria and the heat that the, the, um, the, the you know kind of pick up in activity that's going on
5: there. Yeah so this uh, Israeli attack on um, Tartus or the uh, the coastal city and Masyaf uh, in the Hama region uh, Masyaf holds the uh, you know the Syrian military uh, advanced technology uh, scientific research centers and um, you know for the first time, we saw the Syrian government use uh, advanced uh, SAM missiles, and they shot down most of them. Um, unfortunately, a few of them hit the uh, scientific complex in Masyaf, and uh, some of the uh, you know homes uh, around it and the fields got burnt. Um, yeah, at the same time, this happened, as you noted, uh, where there was a multiple attacks on. Uh, American occupation bases in the northeast of Syria, in the Zor, where the uh, big oil fields were hit by drones, suicide drones, and missiles, as well as the 10th uh, occupation zone uh, on the triangle border between Iraq, Jordan, and Syria, and uh, that this came as a response to attacks by American forces on um, allied bases, Syrian government allied bases in uh, the the border region with Iraq, um, you know, and this is a clear indication that things are moving uh, on the ground in Syria. We saw the, the militias uh, um, that are liberation militias that have been formed in their sort of take over one of the major uh, oil fields and expel both the Kurdish and American forces. So this is now uh, an oil field that uh, the Syrian government uh, liberated. And it seems this is the direction that we're going to be going. Um, more and more attacks will come on American bases in Syria. Uh, and uh, this you know as as long as the turkish military is um, happy with the syrian government attacking uh Tur- kurdish uh, militias that the americans are are um, supplying we may see a huge change uh, shifts on the ground in syria but again this is all connected to um, what is happening in lebanon it's also connected to what's happening in iraq um and today iraq is all on fire with uh Muqtada Sadr's um, uh, militias attempting to occupy the green zone, and Muqtada Sadr uh, finally actually uh, sending out a resignation saying he will be retiring from all public and political life and is uh, fleeing the country to Iran. So, all of these developments are connected together. Things are moving very fast, and they, clearly, they're not in favor of the United States and its uh, lackeys and vessels.
0: Does Does Iran really want him? And and I ask that because I don't know the relationship between Muqtada al-Sadr and 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 Iran. So does Iran would would does Iran want someone want him fleeing to their country? It will be actually the
5: best solution that he flees to Iran because. If he doesn't get the protection of Iran, it's very likely that the Saudis and the Americans behind them will assassinate him and try to blame it on Iran and or its um, forces that are allied with it in Iraq. So the best situation for the Iraqi people is for him to go to Iran and cease uh, you know, blabbing on TV uh, and, and making trouble for the country.
0: Staying with the Saudis, there are two stories I'd like to get your take on, on the cultural side, more, more or less. One, Saudi Arabia, this is, uh, uh, they're both from Middle East I Saudi Arabia, more than 30 NGOs call for the release of Sama al-Shahab. She's been sentenced to 30 years. She's a, a Saudi Arabian student and mother of two in an escalation of repression in the kingdom. Uh, An alliance of more than 30 rights groups have called on the international community to pressure Saudi Arabia to release imprisoned national Salma al-Shahab, who was sentenced to 34 years over a series of tweets criticizing the kingdom. And then the other story is, from Middle East Eye, former imam of Mecca's Grand Mosque jailed for 10 years. Sheikh Saleh al-Talib was arrested with no official explanation and he has been sentenced to ten years. can as the United States is engaging with the Saudis and this whole thing about protection of human rights, there seems to be the Saudi government is operating with business as usual. Oh, yeah, and
5: it will continue to operate with business as usual as long as it's a protectorate of uh, the Western powers. Um, you know, this uh, sad story of uh, uh, Salma Al Shehab. I mean, she's a mother of two. She's a PhD uh, candidate, and, and all she did is retweet things uh, as she was uh, outside the Saudi Arabia doing her PhD, and as as the minute she walked into the country, she was abducted and and put on trial for this. And this has to do also with the fact that she is Shia Saudi, um, which means that um, you know she's any any movement by the Shia. Population in uh, the Saudi kingdom is monitored at a higher rate because where they live, which is where all the oil and gas fields of Saudi are. Um, and, um, you know, to link it to the story of uh, the Imam of uh, Mecca's Grand Mosque, he's jailed for 10 years. And, you know, m- many people claim that they don't know why, but the fact is that, uh, you know, in uh, before he got arrested in 2018, uh, he, uh, you know, gave a sermon uh, from Mecca, from the Grand Mosque, uh, you know, calling for support for the Palestinian people, unity of the Muslims, uh, and, and anti-sectarianism in the face of uh, the Zionist uh, establishment. So here we have uh, the Grand, uh, you know, Mufti of uh, of Mecca. The imam of the Grand mosque uh, being you know, thrown in jail for daring to call for unity, uh, anti-sectarianism and for support for the Palestinian people. Um, and this is not going to go well and it's not going well in the population of Saudi Arabia. We have you know the south of uh, Saudi, which are Yemeni um, population that has been occupied and, and territory since the 1930s that are up in flames. Because of their cousins and brothers being killed in Yemen proper, we have the whole East Coast with the Shia population uh, on edge. And now it's the Hejaz, which is where Mecca and Medina are, that are um, you know becoming uh, a target of uh, repression. Uh, and this comes at the same time as hundreds of thousands of homes uh, were being demolished in Mecca. And Jeddah by the Saudi regime to build the condos and such and over 2 million people displaced uh, in both cities Mecca and, Mid- and Jeddah um, so I don't know where they're going the Saudis with this uh, with this program but clearly they're only uh, putting themselves in more danger uh, of of an uprising by the population.
2: Uh, You know, Wilmer, and I can guarantee you, Tony Blinken will not say a word about uh, human rights violations or anything, because right now they're still begging Saudi Arabia for oil
0: oil every other day. You are absolutely right about that. Laith Marouf, as always, thank you so much for your time. We appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. You have a great evening. We are back and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Spending. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. John, our own John Kiriakou has a piece in Consortium News entitled, Don't Charge Trump with Espionage. Former President Donald Trump shouldn't be charged with espionage for taking classified documents with him, some of them apparently very highly classified, when he left the White House for semi-retirement at his mar largo home. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He's a National Organizer for Action for Assange, Steve, Poikin, and Steve, as Always welcome back.
8: Good to be here. Thank you, gentlemen.
0: So, uh, John writes, nobody should be charged with espionage unless they are working for a foreign power and mean harm to the United States. The Espionage Act, which was written 105 years ago to combat German saboteurs, is rarely used now to target spies and traitors. Instead, it's used as a cudgel to silence whistleblowers, journalists, and occasionally a stupid former president. Steve Poykinen, your thoughts.
8: This is, a, this is a, a fantastic article by John, who we were talking about, has done time under the Espionage Act. Um, this is something that has been used. You can follow the same trajectory as the rise of the online independent press and the use of the, uh, the, use of the Espionage Act as a, a political weapon against journalists and whistleblowers and uh, everyone but spies. Uh, so, I mean, it, it follows along a certain pattern. The article goes on to highlight that from what, 2008, 2009 to the present, there's been over a dozen people who have been charged as whistleblowers or journalists or publishers under the Espionage Act, with Julian Assange, of course, being the penultimate case that you can look at and go, this is clearly being weaponized for all of the wrong reasons. Why do we have a 105 year old law lying around in the first place that no one's bothered to take a look at?
2: Steve, you know, this is an important uh, two sentences to me. Here's what he says. Harm to the national security isn't even a consideration anymore. Now it's just about punishment and about making a political point. I believe that the charging Donald Trump with the Uh, You know, or or implying that there could be something to do with the Espionage Act. They already know that there is a certain element in this country that if anything they say about Donald Trump, well, possibly Donald Trump may be involved in Mopri on the high seas, that there's an element that will immediately say, He's done it. He's been he's moping on the high seas that any assertion is a conviction. So saying that, as soon as they hear that word espionage implied with Donald Trump, they'll immediately jump to we knew it. He was working for Russia And they can play that narrative game that it's exactly what he's saying. This isn't about national security. It could be about punishment, making a political point, or in this instance, about pushing a narrative that Donald Trump is somehow a Russian operative. Steve?
8: Well, this is how you know it's a narrative operation. This is how you know it's politically motivated because it's all centered around innuendo and character assassination instead of the context of the allegations to begin with. There's no... What is it? There's no there there. There's no there there. Not even in terms of did he conspire with a foreign country to commit aid and harm, you know, to give them aid to commit harm to the U.S.? No, that's what espionage is. Did Donald Trump have documents that were classified? Of course he did. We knew about that. The FBI knew about that. They helped him put on a better lock. (laughs) <laughs> this is this is there's nothing other than politically motivated purposes for control of information directly ahead of an election on the heels of complete admission by Mark Zuckerberg saying, yes, well, as a matter of fact, we did cooperate with the FBI to withhold information from the American public before the last election. So I, I don't know how much more clear they can be.
0: John also goes into talking about the, the the whole law itself has a myriad of flaws. He says, first of all, no one ever bothered to define what national defense information is. He said there's no affirmative defense written into the law. A defendant was forbidden from saying in court, yes, I gave national defense information to a reporter because I was revealing a crime or I did it in the national interest. And he says the Sedition Act, which was passed a year later, amended the Espionage Act to criminalize forms of speech, including any disloyal, profane, scurrilous or abusive language about the form of government of the United States or the flag of the United States, or the uniform of the Army or the Navy. And I think it's also important in in a broader historical context, and I think John would agree with me, to understand that we normally see these actions brought forward when the United States finds itself in some type of peril, usually having to do around wartime.
8: Yeah, well, I mean, let's look at let's put it in in John's context too for his situation. In his case, we were, for all intents and purposes, engaged hotly in the global war on terror. Mm -hmm. We are to this day engaged hotly in the global war on terror. We're in a state of perpetual war, which means the opportunity for perpetual espionage exists, and there are Wilmer spies around every corner. Of course, you know, uh, so. Why wouldn't you want to be more proactive in your charging of people under an arcane 100-plus-year-old law? This is interesting to me, too, because they repealed the sedition law. Rarely in the United States history have we repealed any law, but the sedition law was so egregious, so completely over-the-top and ripe for abuse that they were go that they said, well, maybe not. But the problem is... Uh, The particular text about the language that you're not allowed to use about the government, that's been absorbed back into the Espionage Act to the point of where we're all about to be classified as information terrorists.
2: Caitlin Johnstone's article, FBI's muting of Hunter Biden story. Very interesting because uh, Zuckerberg pretty much comes out and says that the FBI is the editor for Facebook. That they hey, well, we well, don't blame us. We had to run it by the editor, the FBI. And the editor said, nah, that could be Russian information. The interesting thing about that, I've been bringing this up uh, recently, is that the we now know that the FBI had a copy of of the Hunter Biden uh, hard drive for a year prior to this. They had plenty of time to look through it and figure out what it was, and everyone with half a brain already knew that it wasn't. It's, I'll put it like this. It's not plausible to argue that the FBI both had a copy of the hard drive and at the same time didn't know whether or not it was some kind of Russian information. They had it. They knew what the heck it was. It was his hard drive. They went to the, they went to the, um, they went to Zuckerberg and just said, take it off Facebook. And he said, well, sure. Why not? Your thoughts on all of that, Steve?
8: Well, he even said, and I still believe the FBI is a, a good and worthwhile institution worth preserving and protecting and buggy. He, he did the the ritual he did. You know, he went through and, did the, uh, the hail Mary or the, whatever it's to make sure that the FBI knows that they don't have to come back and lean on them a little bit harder. (laughs) No, 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 no. We're already playing ball. Don't worry. I love your work. I do. I do. There's a couple of people you got working for you. I'm not crazy about, but you guys are great. And so that in and of itself is a big sign that this operation is going to continue that, that they didn't, they didn't just take the business model that Ken Delanian had perfected where he would send his articles to the CIA for editing or approval before publication. He cut out the middleman entirely and made the FBI the boss. And, and just put the FBI in charge of uh one of, if not the largest social media platform, at least in the West, uh where zero questions were asked and and apparently zero introspection went into what it was they were doing so we can look forward to more of this.
0: one of the things I find interesting Garland's uh, description as the FBI being the editor that takes me back to the CIA and uh, American media outlets we know the Los Angeles Times did this where they ran their stories through the CIA before the stories were published and uh, was it kendallanian Is that mm-hmm. is, is that who? Uh, yeah, who's now at NBC News? I think uh, was was caught doing that with uh, with the LA Times and, and lost his job. So what I, what this says to me is that these types of actions and behavior can manifest themselves in a number of different ways, but they're always uh, they're ongoing.
8: Well, in 1970, what, five with the, the church committee where they disclosed Operation Mockingbird, where the CIA had admitted to infiltrating, according to them, every aspect of the media, every conceivable level. We're, we're almost 50 years removed from that. And the idea that as technology progressed and intelligence agencies became both more, more technologically savvy and more politically savvy, more devious. Uh, and started promoting and hiring more and more devious people that these operations didn't continue. On top of that, the Smith Modernization Act of 2012 that Obama signed into with the a part as part of the NDAA, where it just opens the floodgates for direct state propaganda on American airwaves. We're at the point now again to where, uh, to where having the security state as editor in chief of not just individual media outlets, but the social media platforms on which they aggregate this information is 100% the reality we live in that's
2: crazy. The other thing I think that's important, if you look further down this story, one of the things that Alan McLeod brought up in his articles was that um, Google, well, let's Facebook in this instance, they're hiring people from the FBI and the CIA and the NSA to handle their security. So somebody from the FBI comes to Facebook and says, hey, I'd like to talk to some former FBI employees. Right this way, they're in security. Hey, dear former FBI supplier, uh, yes, well, the FBI's says that you got a problem there. Don't run this. So it ends up that it's FBI all the way down. And there is, I mean, the lawsuits should just be writing themselves to say that this is an end around the Constitution for the government violating First Amendment rights. Got about a minute. Your thoughts?
8: The, yeah, the argument that, oh, well, Facebook or Twitter is a private corporation and they can hire whoever they want. It it falls to pieces when you have a door-to-door relationship (laughs) with the FBI, the CIA, with the Department of Homeland Security. This this is a a propaganda operation. This is a, a behavioral psychology experiment and a social engineering experiment. We're living in it right now.
0: Steve Poikin, and as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Thank you very much. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Press TV has a piece entitled, "Francis' Crimes in Africa, Historical Facts or Misleading Info? France's President Emmanuel Macron has called on African youth not least the Algerians to refer from considering France as an enemy of their countries for insight into this we turn to our next guest he holds the John Jay and Rebecca Moores Chair of History and African American Studies at the University of Houston he's one of the most prolific writers of our time his latest book is entitled The Counter-Revolution of 1836 Texas Slavery Jim Crow and the Roots of American Fascism Dr. Gerald Horn, as always Welcome back.
9: Thank you for inviting me.
0: So Macron was responding to a question from journalists about the anti-French sentiment in a number of African countries. The president, he's on a three-day visit to uh, Algeria, which began on Friday, and Algeria has marked its 60th anniversary of independence. So, Dr. Horn, help us understand, what is it that uh, Macron is trying to get Algerians to forget?
9: A history of mass torture, bestiality, brutalization to begin with, Uh, beginning officially in 1830 with the French colonizing of that largest African nation, speaking of Algeria. And then continuing for decades forward, recall that the brutalization of Algeria attracted the attention of the Caribbean Analyst and psychiatrist and writer Franz Fanon, who then came to North Africa and became a steady ally of the Algerian freedom fighters, and his works, including *The Wretched of the Earth*, uh, then went on to inspire generations of Black American militants, including the Black Panther Party. So I think that Mr. Macron is aware—at least I hope he's aware. Of what I just recounted. And you should also step back for a second and try to understand why Mr. Macron chose this moment to arrive in North Africa, just a day or two before his departing France. He gave a remarkable speech where he said that the so-called era of abundance, his words, not mine, Mm -hmm. was screeching to a halt in France. Now, of course, That era of of abundance will not necessarily uh, end for his uh, millionaire and billionaire backers. He's basically promising and pledging austerity for the French working class, and this has a lot to do with how France and other Western European nations fundamentally sanctioned themselves when they thought that they were sanctioning Russia— in light of the special military operation in Ukraine of February 2022. Uh, that is to say, I'm sure you're familiar with the headlines that suggest that energy prices in London will be skyrocketing by 80% as winter peaks around the corner. Of friends may not be hit with that kind of cyclonic velocity because it's more dependent upon nuclear energy to deliver electricity and other sources of energy, but certainly it will be impacted. And so that helped to guide Mr. Macron across the Mediterranean because Algeria is a major producer of natural gas. But the bad news for Mr. Macron is that the Algerians are well aware of the fact that they're sitting in the catbird seat. The Algerians have worked out rather positive relations with Moscow, and they are unwilling to be manipulated uh, by their former colonial master. And this makes Mr. Macron's visit all the more difficult and problematic. And I should also say that if certain commentators are accurate, we may be at an inflection point in terms of the tortured and torturous history of some of these Western European capitalist countries uh, symbolized by France, who benefited so handsomely from not only the plunder of Africa, but the like plunder of the Americas. But now, with their self-sanctioning, there are those who are suggesting that with regard to the capitalist world, the Western European countries which has been seen as one of the richest pockets on planet Earth, uh, may be descending in status. And unless they can work out some sort of arrangement with African nations like Algeria to make up for the shortfall in terms of their declining relations with Russia, I think that those prognosticators may have a point. And I think it may be time to kick Mr. Macron and his class while they're down.
2: You know, Dr. Horn, something that we've discussed here, and that is that how the history of colonialism affects the dynamics of this whole um, change, this sea change now, in that initially the U.S. empire thought that all of the African and South American countries, etc., the global south, out of fear, would go along with them. And the history of brutal, brutal colonialism colored their view to say, nah, we ain't with you on this one. We're overall going to go with Russia on, on this one because you guys are a bunch of brutal colonialists. Now they're trying to make up for the doing the same thing, trying to say, okay, we lost the resources from Russia. We'll go Africa or South America, wherever, that has plenty of resources. And again, it's this history of brutal colonialism is coming back in a time of need to haunt the U.S. empire and the, and the um, you know, former empires, uh, colonial empires in um, Europe. Dr. Horn, your thoughts?
9: Well, and this is particularly the case for Algeria, which came to independence in 1962 after a rather brutal conflict. Uh, In fact, uh, the conflict was so brutal that when then French leader Charles de Gaulle was trying to negotiate a settlement with the North African fighters, there was such opposition in France that he barely escaped being assassinated. Uh, You may reference the blockbuster film, Day of the Jackal, in order to get a glimpse Mm -hmm. of what I'm referring to. Indeed, With regard to the point that Jesus made, even the New York Times today, uh, August 29th, uh, 2022, uh, mentioned at the conclusion of an article about Mr. Macron's visit that the Algerians are quite hostile to the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, uh, led by the United States of America, which now has plunged uh, Europe into crisis by dint of this conflict in Ukraine. Uh, Why should not the Africans be hostile to NATO? Uh, The other headline that we should be paying attention to is the turmoil in Libya. Recall that it was NATO that toppled the more and more Qaddafi regime more than a decade ago, uh, plunging that North African nation, indeed a neighbor of Algeria, uh, into turmoil, which is now erupting in bloodshed in the streets. We know that NATO tried to prevent the coming to independence of the former Portuguese colony that is Angola, which just had elections in the last few days, tried to prevent the coming to independence of its neighbor across the continent in Mozambique. We know that in 1947, in an episode that is yet to receive the kind of publicity it so richly merits, the French colonialists massacred tens of thousands of Africans in Madagascar, the island off the southeast coast of mozambique with the complicity i might add of us imperialism and so it seems that the north atlantic nations must think that we africans are have some advanced case of amnesia or dementia that we do not have historical memory either that that they must think that we're chunks either that and i'm afraid to say they must think that The Africans act like some African-Americans do, who oftentimes overlook the ravages and savagery of slavery and Jim Crow in order to maintain peace with the regime in Washington. Well, I'm afraid to inform Mr. Macron and his comrades that the African nations like Algeria have sovereignty, and they have little interest in making peace with a declining cohort of imperialist bloodsuckers headquartered in Paris.
0: And to that point, Macron says, let's be clear. Many activists of political Islam have an enemy, France. Many networks that are clandestinely stirred up by Turkey, Russia, and China have an enemy, France. Denouncing the neo-colonial and imperialist plans of influence of those countries, the French president expressed hope, that France and Algeria would be able to look back at the past with humility in order to establish trust and cooperation in the future. Let's move forward. I know that building trust takes time, but I do my work with patience, commitment, and love for the African continent and Algeria. (coughs) What are we to make of that, Dr. Horn?
9: Well, as I said, uh, he must think that the Algerians are chumps. Uh, Instead of humility, he should have said look back in in the past with amnesia, Uh, that is to say forgetting uh, all of the blood that was shed over the decades by Algerian patriots because of the bloodthirstiness of these uh, French colonialists and plunderers. And you mentioned Turkey in terms – or Turkey, I should say, in terms of that litany. And in terms of analyzing – the present global correlation of forces, we would be remiss if we failed to pay attention to Turkey, which, as you know, for 500 years, ending in about 1918, were a major force by dint of the Ottoman Empire, ruling a good deal of Africa. And during that time and since that time, Turkeya and France have crossed swords more than once. They're crossing swords once again because much of the erstwhile french neocolonial empire in africa happens to be in countries that oftentimes had close relations to turkey based upon the commonality of islam Uh, algeria uh, morocco uh, tunisia uh, senegal the list is long and i think that turkey has a bone to pick uh, with the european union it's been a candidate member since 1999 Uh, Shunted aside, and I would say that religious bigotry, that is to say the fact that it's a predominantly Muslim nation, has something to do with that, particularly when you see how Ukraine is being put on the fast track to European Union membership. And so Turkey is drawing the appropriate conclusions, uh, brokering uh, more positive relations with Moscow, uh, increasingly turning its back on the North Atlantic countries to the point where the U.S. Treasury Department issued a stark warning to businesses in Turkey to stop dealing so warmly with Moscow on the economic level. This was a blatant violation of Ankara's sovereignty. Uh, Once again, the North Atlantic countries must think that they're dealing with chunk as opposed to dealing with countries like Turkey with sovereign and independent national interests.
2: And um, I would argue that very shortly, because Turkey does facilitate the movement of a lot of energy come this winter, um, they better not push themselves too far from Turkey because they're going to need them and probably need them to negotiate with Moscow. We've got uh, one minute.
9: Well, that that is a fair point. And and keep in mind as well that uh, Turkey has an antagonist with regard to Greece, We know that Greece, which is a member of the European Union, uh, has been favored by France to the consternation of Ankara. Turkey has just resumed diplomatic relations with Israel after years of frostiness. Uh, We know that France, along with the United States, have been stalwart allies of the Zionist entity. And so I think that the world is becoming ever more complicated for these North Atlantic nations. And if they're not careful, they're going to accelerate the decline, the spiral of decline that they now find themselves in.
0: Dr. Gerald Horn, as always, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Thank you. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Sam Husseini has a piece in Consortium News, the fact-checking liberal media. Sam writes, In a remarkably unhinged analysis, NPR host Terry Gross and New York Times Magazine reporter Robert Draper claimed that Russia is a communist country, as they went on about how detached from reality right-wing Republicans are. After Sam and others tweeted about... About this, NPR posted this correction, quote, post broadcast correction in the audio version of this story. Terry Gross incorrectly states that Russia is a communist country when she meant to say that Putin was the head of the KGB during the communist era. And Sam says this almost makes it worse. For insight, let's turn to our next guest. He co-hosts the Confo Couch on and AM Wake Up on Rockfin, Craig Jardula. Craig, Welcome back. Oh, thanks for having me here, gentlemen. So Sam continues. If you substitute what NPR now claims Gross meant to say, it really doesn't make any sense. Gross and Draper were riffing off of each other in what can most charitably be described as a ridiculous example of groupthink. It displays the all-too-frequent smugness of liberals going on about other people's failing to fact-check, in this case talking about seniors with a ti- with a lot of time on their hands while getting the most elementary facts wrong its remarkable projection. Craig Jardula, your thoughts?
6: Well, I don't know if it's group or just group propaganda. You know, <laughs> I keep on saying, when are we going to get these same emails that these people get to make sure they have the same, you know, talking points? Look, they know, they understand, meaning the mainstream media, those who work for the masters of the universe, like the oligarchs and those who are eventually at the top of the, the money line at eventually trickles down to what what is called our our media which does nothing but propaganda i mean you gentlemen were just talking about you know it's amazing when you come with truth how crazy people get but i mean it's just part of the same propaganda piece to throw that word out there communism communism you know and and it seems like the left in america the the politicians that is are trying to make it sound like the conservatives are the ones who are cozying up to Russia, you know, uh, and, and accepting some of the things that Russia does. And they're the communists. They're, they're hypocritical while trying to be as anti-China themselves as possible. So that's what we have here. There was nothing that would surprise me in that conversation. In fact, if I was listening in on that conversation, uh, I, I would say, yeah, that's expected because that's what they're going to throw out.
2: You know, what's interesting, Craig, and that is their post-broadcast correction, because in their pro, uh, uh, the, the, their correction, they said in the audio version of this story, Terry Gross incorrectly states that Russia is a communist country. Well, actually, he had said a whole lot more than that. He said that Putin is pushing the communist ideology, but they corrected it. They said when she meant to say that Putin was the head of the KGB during the communist era. But he was never the head of the KGB during the communist era. So that's like me saying, you know, a correction that I said that Craig Jard- Jardula is a vampire. Well, that would be silly. Everybody knows that there's no such thing as vampires. He's an elf or, or maybe a leprechaun. I don't know. One of those two for sure. So it's so preposterous that even their correction is ridiculous propaganda. Craig.
6: Well, you know, you, you would think it'd be ridiculous and stuff because the, the correction was nothing even close to what was just said. Forget about the topic. Forget about what they were trying to mention. Like, the wording was not even close. But once again, Garland, you know, they they know that the people are lazy when it comes to their research, that a lot of the information they get when it comes to news is at the gym uh, while they're just looking at the headlines that go across. So if they can kind of create these similar parallels, yeah, no, Putin wasn't the head of the KGB, you know, uh, during, you know, when the communists were in charge there. In fact, uh, he wasn't just a regular KGB agent. He was a lawyer for crying out loud. But then they can still draw that parallel. to so, well, what the new KGB was, that's what Putin was ahead of. So they figured if they can just kind of throw those parallels out, Garland, they don't have to be like, you know, actually correct in their wording. They can, you know, chop up and dice up the, the English language. But as long as they draw that parallel that's similar, then they'll be fine because then their confirmation bias message will get out and it will be effective.
0: And at the end of the day, that's really all – well, a couple of things. One, at the end of the day, that, that's really all that it's about. How many people that are – to your earlier point, Craig, how many people that are listening to this really know – The detail to be able to discern about the various periods in Russian history and the fact, to your point, that, you know, he retired, I think, from the KGB as a lieutenant colonel. And you mentioned he was an attorney at the time. You know, those are important facts if you're really trying to do some analysis. But if all you're really trying to do is to promote a narrative, then that detail is really irrelevant.
6: Yeah. Come on, Wilma. You can't get the facts out there. Never let the truth get in the way of a good B.S. story. And the B.S. story is that Putin is like Thanos. He's ex-KGB and not KGB kind of writing, a, you know, putting a pen on a paper and doing law stuff, you know, uh, going in that route. No, he's the type that, you know, would, you know, jump on the car, scale down, the, you know, the walls. He's that type of KGB. Cold killer, you know what I'm saying? Because that's what they need him to be to justify all their foreign policy activity or decisions. And that's what he's going to be. Not, you know, don't be nuanced over here, Wilmer. Let's not look at the <laughs> truth. That's going to mess up our, our narrative. We don't want that to happen.
0: Well, and, just, and if I could add to that point, Garland, then that makes the understanding of poisoning of the scripples and the poisoning of who was the guy? Uh, Navalny. Navalny. And it makes it makes all those stories— much more plausible.
2: Yeah, exactly. All the Novichok stuff, that, them, the deadliest poison in the world that doesn't will that seem, doesn't to, kill seem to kill anybody. Yeah, you can actually, I think you can sprinkle it kind of like trail mix on your oatmeal. It's good for you.
6: I heard a story that like it was Putin was behind the killing of uh, Alexander, uh, Alexander's daughter over there. So he can now justify going crazy in the Ukraine. That's, that's the stories you'll hear. That's how bad <laughs> Putin is. I, I made a tweet before I said, it's Vladimir Putin, not Thanos. Get it right.
2: Caitlin Johnstone at Consortium News. FBI's muting of Hunter Biden's story. Zuckerberg's deployment of algorithms to please the FBI is a glaring example of how billionaires and government work together to control information in an oligarchy. And so uh, Mark Zucker- Zuckerberg has come out and basically said, yeah, we did, uh, you know, mute the old Hunter Biden story before the election because the FBI came and told us to. Let me give you a hint of Mark Zuckerberg. That don't make things better. I'm not like, oh, my God. I'm so relieved you did it because the government law enforcement agency came you and told, I thought you just did it for some other reason. All is well. Craig, your thoughts?
6: Well, you know, the the question I keep on asking myself, and I said this morning, I said, when big tech and big uh, big tech and the government work together, and then somebody says, wait a second, they don't work together with the government. They are the government. And, you know, it almost seems at this point, you know, you just point out people like Susan Wachicki, right, who's the CEO of YouTube. She's openly a big-time donor and, and fundraiser for the Clinton, you know, party, the, the Bill, Bill and Hillary, for both of their presidential runs. Anytime they're, they're running for office, people like Susan Wachicki are there. So, I mean, I think the big question sometimes we have to ask ourselves, is this just is this the, the government and big tech working together, or are they actually already together? Because this stuff, I mean, once again, it, you know, this is a, not a surprise, gentlemen. We kind of expected this. We've been seeing this. We've all been victims of censorship and getting taken down. I mean, not only did mainstream media not touch the Hunter Biden story because they were fearful of being taken down, independent media didn't want to put that stuff up because we knew we'd be taken down as well.
0: And I find this interesting in Caitlin's story. He says, basically, this this is Zuckerberg. Basically, the background here is the FBI, I think, basically came to us. Some folks on our team and was like, so first of all, we need to check his grammar. Hey, um, just so you know, like you should be on high alert. There was the we thought that there was a lot of Russian propaganda in the 2016 election. We have it on notice that basically there is about to be some kind of dump of that similar to that. So just be vigilant. That's the FBI talking to So apparently Zuckerberg.
2: they didn't refer to any particular story. No. According to him, they just said, hey, there's stuff out there. Be vigilant. You so he,
0: he leaves himself a lot of space for plausible denial <laughs> is my first point. Yeah. Second point is Zuckerberg said a decision was made to restrict that information on Facebook's multi-billion user platform. He said that unlike Twitter— which banned the sharing of the article entirely, Facebook opted for the somewhat subtler option of censorship by
2: algorithm. One other quick thing. He says, and I'm going to go back to my statement analysis days. I love this. A decision was made. No, no, no. Somebody made the decision. Who? A decision was made to kill Garland. Really? Just made it by itself? Nobody actually made it?
0: That's almost like the gun going off. Yeah,
2: the gun went off.
0: Nobody pulled the trigger. (laughs) The gun went off. So, Craig, are are we parsing this too closely or is this just Zuckerberg B.S.?
6: Well, you know, I don't know if it's Zuckerberg BS. I think it could be, you know, kind of like described as government BS. Once again, I think this is a working hand in hand, you know, and the way he downplayed it, right? Like he just, oh, you know, we didn't, we didn't take it down like Twitter did. We we just shadow banned it. We just did it nefariously, which is kind of exposing some of their, their really dirty tricks there. But I mean, does this even surprise you guys at all? I mean, you know, once again, they were just following orders with this particular story. They just settled the case, Facebook, with the Cambridge Analytica case, which, in fact, Zuckerberg says there was a data breach. And there are people within the company who said, no, he's lying. He sold off the data for a price. So you can't you can't take Zuckerberg's word on anything. But it's just another situation. Remember the, the cabal, the, the Time Life magazine, where they all met together to save democracy? This is more, more the same.
2: Well, the other thing is this, and, and, and this is the, the, when you look at this, this, this whole thing and you have this discussion, there is a foundational problem. Did anybody. I mean, are we going to pretend that there was somebody who didn't know that that was Hunter Biden's laptop? Are we going to pretend that maybe the FBI suspected that it wasn't his? No. Every person who looked at this knew that, and including Hunter Biden, because that's why he wouldn't deny it. He wouldn't say it's not mine. I don't know. Could be. Maybe not. Maybe it's Russian. So the other part of it here is we're still playing this foolish game that there could have— That there was possibly a suspicion. The reality is not only did the FBI know that it was Hunter Biden's laptop, they had a copy of it themselves. They're sitting there with a copy of that laptop hard drive. And at the time they had it, they went to Facebook and said, we don't know if it's really original or not. They could have said, now, we haven't had a copy for a year, and we've been all over it, and clearly it is, but we haven't figured out. It is preposterous on its face, Greg.
6: Yeah, oh, it is. I mean, I I don't want to say, are we going to pretend? I'm going to say, how long are we going to keep pretending? I mean, this is crazy. They're just doing this right in our face. And yet, meanwhile, they're going after 45, and they're raiding his place. When are going to raid Hunter's place. You know what I'm saying? Why do you get more information about that? It, this, this, this thing has just spun so far out of control. But I think it really does kind of once and for all, again, just exposes who big tech is. They don't work with the government. They are the government at this point. And they're going to do everything to protect their people. You know what I'm saying? They're oligarchs. They're globalists. And that's what they're continuing to do here. But they don't they don't have to raid Hunter's
2: place because they already know what's there. They already got copies of everything. Yeah.
6: Well, and that and, and that and kind and of takes. And the, and the person who, who transported Ashley Biden's diary, now they got arrested. I mean, everything is turned upside down. You know what I'm saying? I'm surprised they haven't arrested the guy in the computer store for, for selling off that freaking computer that he got.
0: So we've got about 45 seconds. And, and my in all of this connecting the dots to Joe Biden in Ukraine. When are they going to connect the dots to Joe Biden in Ukraine? They're not
6: gonna, because they oh. would have if they already had it. I mean, we we do, we have a confession from Joe Biden at the foreign for council relationships, right? I mean, he's there admitting that if they don't fire the prosecutor who's looking into my son's dirty deeds, then we're not giving him the IMF loan. You're not getting the money, right? I, I mean, that's the things they say. They say this in the open, but people just have confirmation by it because they got the people split, Wilmer. They got them split Team A versus Team B, Team Red versus Team Blue. So no matter what, it seems like people don't want the truth. They just want the, the information that's going to confirm their team bias.
0: Craig Jardula, thank you very much as always. Greatly appreciate it. Look forward to having you back.
6: Gentlemen, I have a great time when I come on. You have a great day.
0: Thank you. Folks, you've been listening to the Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing our voices into your space. On behalf of myself and my co-host, Garland Nixon, we hope you were informed and enlightened. And we look forward to talking with you all right here tomorrow on Radio Sputnik. Be safe. Peace and blessings. We're out.